Stardate 069420.1. It's been 8,375 days since I've been Captain O'Connor's jockstrap, and I couldn't be happier. Welcome to Reengage. I'm Jimmy G, <laughs> the podcast where some older people rewatch the beloved Star Trek TNG through filters of being a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser. Let's go around and meet our cultural bridge crew. Greg Tito, how you do? I'm doing good, Jimmy. Having uh, a ball getting to know Okana. Uh, and i forgotten how much I, I, I loved him. Eric, how you doing? Well, he's outrageous, you see. Uh, this is my favorite genre of opening log. This is like the word problem genre. You know, we find ourselves in a sticky wicket. There are two planets or peoples or puppies somehow inextricably connected physically, geographical or genetically, and yet they are also separated either actually or metaphorically by circumstances beyond the... And it just gives the whole plot. It's, it's my favorite. Yes. Kate, Miss Kate, how are you? I'm doing fine, Jimmy. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about the outrageous Okana, which sounds like it was like a missed opportunity for its own uh, spinoff. Absolutely. The adventures of the outrageous Okana. And I have to tell you, I would have been in mm-hmm. like so hardcore. Uh, although this... Uh, episode could have easily just been called hey lady um <laughs> let's get it on <laughs> all right and that that strange voice you hear is our guest for this evening uh my good good friend mr zoltan zabadi zoltan yeah. how you doing man I'm doing excellent. Thank you for having me here. It's quite the honor. And you talk about Okana like like he's been in a lot of episodes or he's going to be in a lot of episodes. So I'm I'm intrigued by that, but maybe not. He's not like a Harry Mudd who does no. kind of show up in in oh. different episodes here and there. But oh, wouldn't it be great? Yes. It would be nice. They they missed they missed the opportunity. They did they did. Uh so Z, one of the things that we've all done and and talked about is how we came to Star Trek The Next Generation. So uh, tell us how you came to this franchise and your connection to it. Well, I am like a, you know, rooted in the ground original series fan. I watch it over and over incessantly. Jimmy knows I watch sci-fi things that I like over and over incessantly. But at the sacrifice of new art that comes from it, which is The Next Generation. So my... My thing with the next generation is that the anticip- anticipation was so great when it was coming out. Mm-hmm. You know, I just waited and waited. I was at, I was in high school, aging myself, and mm-hmm. I was so excited. I just waited because I knew it was coming, and and I was in that age where like I was you know I was waiting for Queen to come toward the U.S., which they never did at that stage in life, which was sad. But um, yeah, so that kind of set me up for disappointment at the first episode that I watched. However, I I got a really good relationship with The Next Generation over the many, many years. It became to me something that, like, I really enjoyed some of the individual episodes. Um, Some of the recurring things I kind of struggled with, like the Borg and Q and stuff like that. Um, But I do that with other shows. It's just me. It's my personality. I do with the X-Files. Like, the X-Files, I like the one-offs. I didn't really like the... I did not like the conspiracy stuff, but it didn't always pull me in. So... 
all in all, such a wonderful thing. And 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 the highlight of the next generation was that episode that was called Unification with Spock when he yeah. came. That was a big deal. And that's on my list of things I'm gonna rewatch many times in my life. So there there you got it. There, there's my thing. I'm excited to be here. I don't remember seeing this one back in the day. I might have. My memory's kind of a little foggy, but uh, it was it was an <laughs> enjoyable experience, and I hope to do it more with all of you. Yeah, well, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Nice. Uh, Thank Zoltan you. and I have a, a nasty habit of when we hang out, having some beers, and we always end the night with uh, Dune, and we very rarely make it past uh, the invasion of the Harkonnens into Arrakis before we're both snoring away. <laughs> And it always seems like original chairs. idea. It's always like, hey, I got an idea. Why don't Let's we sit down Dune. and watch Dune? <laughs> yeah. We'll start in the daylight next time. All right. So here we go. <laughs> We're at episode or season two, episode four. As we said, the outrageous Okana. It started 42402.7. Uh, it aired the week of December 12th in 1988. Uh, and Greg, why don't you tell us what was going on in the world uh, around this time? There was a whole bunch, a uh, continuation of stories that I've, I've mentioned on previous episodes. Uh, poor Mike Tyson, uh, just getting sued left and right. Uh, not not actually poor at all, uh, because he turns out he's not actually a good person, uh, being the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, and did a lot of bad things. And he started to come due. Uh, so two women uh, came out on December 12th. One was uh, uh, from Queens. The other was from Long Island, uh, suing him for various terrible things. Uh, and then a continuation of uh, the story with the Palestinian Liberation uh, Organization uh, with Yasser Arafat addressing the UN in Geneva on December 13th. This was a big deal because uh, a few days later, the U.S. Uh, agreed to meet and uh, with the PLO for the first time in 13 years. Uh, so some diplomatic things going on. I remember hearing about all this when I was watching Star Trek Next Generation. It was your happy place. Get away from the scary yes, real exactly, world from stuff. All the, <laughs> the things that were happening in the world. Uh, the, the New York subway system added a, the Z line on this date, literally on December 12th. JMZ. I don't know too many people who traveled that train. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it did go through South Williamsburg. So there was times where I needed to go when the L was down. I would walk to the Williamsburg uh, JMZ stop and take the J across uh, the other bridge there. But that was rare. Uh, and probably the saddest thing is that, or maybe it's good, the NBA expansion team, Miami Heat, started off their first season losing 17 games. And uh, on December 14th, they won their first game of the franchise. Mm. Oh, good special. for them. Oh, Miami. Do you remember all that hype around like Florida expansion teams? Like it was like the thing that everyone was talking about. And the Miami Heat was a big one of those. Right. Um, no, I don't really remember that. <laughs> Florida ends up dominating every sport. They throw hockey teams down there and then they're winning the Stanley Cup all of a sudden. I don't, I don't know what it is, but that's what they do. Well, and interesting, too, around this time, uh, on December 12th, I, I had read, um, it was like the, the the government made its first big foray into uh, AIDS education and getting AIDS out there, which I thought was interesting in relation to this episode. <laughs> mm. uh, because even, even James Bond 
stop sleeping around with women in the living daylights because of AIDS. And yet Star Trek was getting a little frisky. Um, so that that was interesting for me for tonight's episode. But I, before I struggled we jur- with that. Yeah. Before we jump into those little details, I want to hear uh, from the lovely Kate. Let's hear that beautiful voice. What was our big song of the week? For the second week in a row, look away, baby, look away. Thank you, Chicago, for being the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, That week, uh, the day before, December 11th, the third installment of the Roots series, Roots the Gift, um, was on television. Um, The top movie of the time was, oh my God, one of my favorites, Twins. Come on, y'all, Twins. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito. It's such a classic. I uh, I did watch it recently, and it was should have stayed in my memories. <laughs> it would have been a lot fonder in my memories. Uh, it wasn't terrible by any uh, you know shape of the imagination, but certainly it it thrilled a twelve year old me on a different level than it did a uh, not twelve year old me. Is how we'll delicately call that. <laughs> a few years after this, I was in the hospital for a cerebral hemorrhage, and they would not let me fall asleep but they did not have a VCR readily available. So they went and late at night when I couldn't sleep, they went and stole one from like the kids ward and brought it up and put it in my room. And they had twins and Crocodile Dundee. Nice. I watched like three times while I had to stay awake uh, for Holy my- for, Oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> Very so cool. Twins I always love. And can we please pour one out for uh, the amazing Kelly Preston, who was so good in that as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm pouring it uh, since this is our last episode that we'll have before the, the end of the year of 1988, I thought we would look at the top toy since we're in the holiday season. Mm. Uh, and it was the number one toy that was the most difficult to get. Anyone have any guesses? 1988 uh, top toy. Cabbage Patch. Optimus After Prime. Cabbage Patch, I thought. The, the garbage talking, patch. The talking, the talking. Tickle me Elmo. Tickle me Elmo. Too too early, too early for Tickle Me Elmo, too late for Cabbage Patch. Yeah. Um, too early for Furby. Uh, uh, Ruskin? The, oh, Teddy Ruxpin. Teddy that Ruxpin. was the year before. Oh. Teddy Ruxpin was oh. the year before. Oh, yeah, 87. Nice. Uh, it was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh, yeah. It sure. sold 7 million units mm. in 1988, and the market for uh, NES cartridges that year was bigger than the entire computer software market. Was that the first one, Kate? The very first NES? Yep. Yep. I had that one. For home it, use. It came That's with a robot that moved. Uh, Move the little gyroscope. tops around the gyroscope thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the duck hunt. Nice. I wanted that so bad. I didn't get it until like 1993. But <laughs> yeah, you were already behind. Like there was something cooler out already. Like yeah, uh, yeah. Sony. Yeah, Sony had something. Before I the didn't start uh, playing games until the Dreamcast. That Ooh. that yeah, and then I and then I fell hard, uh, and spent many have spent many years catching up on old NES and and uh, trying to figure out. Um, where my childhood went wrong. And I have one final thing, and that's uh, birthdays that'll make us feel old. Uh, On December 14th of 1988, Vanessa Hudgens was born. So uh, she is that many years old uh, and less old than I am. Yay! (laughs) I don't think we've reached our first, uh, one of our guests' birthdays yet. 
uh, Noah Averbach Katz. I don't. Oh think no, he's been born no, yet. we won't no. reach. We won't reach Noah for a while. I don't think. <laughs> All right, let's crack this episode open. Uh, we have our director Robert Becker. This is one of only two episodes that he directed. Uh, lots of late night soap operas. He directed a bunch of uh, Falcon's Crest, Knots Landing, and Dallas. Um, teleplay though is by Burton Armis and he did 13 episodes almost all of which are within a one year period in 1988 to 1989 so a fantastic number of season 2 episodes uh, the teleplay was written by uh, Mr. Armis and then uh, we have for the story um, less mentioned Lance Dixon and David Landsberg. Uh, IMDb didn't really have a whole lot to say about these guys or their contributions. Um, and then we have a whole long list of guest stars and some really juicy ones. So I think uh, what we'll do for that uh, this episode is we're going to wait until we actually meet them in the episode to start talking about them. So a little bit of tidbits about this episode. Um, Jerry Lewis was actually scheduled to play himself in this episode, um, but mm. he could not because of a conflict with another show he had a reoccurring role on at the time, and that was Wise Guys. He couldn't get out of it, and so they went to uh, Joe Piscopo. Uh, staying in that little tract of the comedy, the Sharnock Comedy Cabaret, is actually named after one of uh, the TNG set painters, actually the head painter, uh, Mr. Ed Charnock Jr. So uh, he got a little nod there. Um, and the holodeck menu of humorous was taken from the TNG phone directory. Uh, so a bunch of the aides, assistants, and uh, people who work on the set were the names that you saw there. Uh, and then when Data asked for, um, give me the funniest people of the time, only one of the names is fake. And that's the very first one. You can kind of see it. The Stanel Riga. Uh, he was like the funniest guy in the 23rd century. That's fake. All the other names were real. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's name is on the, on that list. So is Maurice Hurley. Uh, but the most interesting one was uh, Farouk El Baz, who was a planetary geologist at Boston University. Um, he actually worked with Maurice Hurley on an earlier project uh, in... Um, Farouk is actually named uh, one of the shuttles in Times Square is named after him in a later episode. Oh. And uh, he's hilarious. Say he's one the of the funniest planetary geologists you'll ever meet. <laughs> he kills at parties. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Uh, and then you may have noticed in um, the Tin Ford scene, there's another great shot of a 3D chess game. Yes. Uh, on, on this one, uh, if you looked really closely, uh, you would see the Jupiter 2, which is a spacecraft from Lost in Space. Those were the bishops, and the kings on either side was Robbie the Robot from the same uh, TV show, Lost in Space. All right, so do, there's... Do you know what game they were playing? Uh, what was that, Greg? Do you know what game they were playing? Or was it, did they say that in any of the notes? Uh, it was the 3D, uh, three-dimensional chess is all they call it. So I assumed it was the standard. The um, one that we've seen in. The other... one that we've seen a bunch of times in, in the in TOS. Nice. The multi-leveled uh, chess game. I want to play that game. I do too. I've been, yeah, really wanting to figure that out. I, I'm waiting for Hasbro to come out with it, but they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pitch it to them. No worries. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I broke this down into French scenes because, uh, like Eric, I'm in the theater. I have 19 of them. 
Uh, so let's just crack it up with scene one. We meet a lovable rogue. So uh, we open with a wonderful bit of exposition, uh, as we've already mentioned from Eric earlier, the captain's log. I thought was a great little bit of what the hell is this episode about and who are these people? And all right there in the starting log, we get all the stuff that we need. Uh, and the first thing that jumped out to me, and I want to go around the horn about first impressions, uh, was Worf's derision uh, with armed with lasers only. <laughs> this disgusted Worf <laughs> that two ships with lasers would show up in it. Actually plays into some great jokes later on. But uh, what about this opening scene, guys? What do you? We already got Eric's take on the the star date log. What else did we get from the first time we see these guys in episode four? Well, I am super into the fact that Okana is hot, and we uh, know that right away because everybody falls in love with him like instantaneously except for Worf. I think Worf is the only one who is not uh thrilled by his charms. Uh but uh but yeah there's there's this, you know, ship it's out of control. It's only got lasers. It's no it's no harm to us. And then this irascible rogue who uh Troy reads not so much as uh as a betazoid as much as she reads him like the back of a romance novel cover. Because uh, she says he's mischievous, irreverent, and somewhat brazen. She gets all that from reading his mind. Mm. Yes. Mischievous, irreverent, and somewhat brazen. Oh. So that I, I was in love with uh, how over the top the uh, the reactions to Okana are at, at first. Um, Do you feel like the males were kind of attracted to him as well, too? Like oh, just kind absolutely. Of, yeah. Uh, uh, Riker could like has never it's like his he's man met friend his, his, his double you know like his his uh wingman for right. life it's like he's seen himself he's like is that what i look like because damn man, that's I'm good cool. i like it <laughs> and wesley absolutely wesley like goes wesley wesley's like a little boy love to just like this yeah. guy's gonna be my future <laughs> you know it's it's experimental then uh, and what about not seeing him? Like, they just show the backside of him for a good minute. Yeah, you half. see his butt. Give me yeah. the butt. It is just staged awkwardly where it's like, don't turn around yet. Don't turn around. Don't turn around. Okay, go. <laughs> and you finally well, get the this, review. This honestly gets into casting a little bit uh, because at this point, like, you and I and, and this panel wouldn't have been familiar with uh, Dr. Billy Campbell. Uh, <laughs> but uh, right. our parents right. would have been because of his work on Dynasty, which made him a superstar. And then right after that, he did Crime Story with, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Farina, right? And then right after that ended, he did this as, as kind of a jumping off guest star into whatever lead role he gets next, right? But while he w had his butt to the audience, me not remembering that it was Billy Campbell was sitting there to myself going, all right, now, which of these six guys who got famous in the early 90s is that voice? Because, <laughs> like, I thought, I thought Burke. I thought Gary Cole. I thought, like, it was clearly a, a theater person who is be, who's coming into this. And, and uh, like, my reactions to Billy Campbell are always super positive. What do you guys think of first? Uh, the first impression I had was this guy absolutely was on the national tour of Kiss Me Kate right before he got cast in this because everything about him yeah. was super theatrical and not like in a, a, an annoying or unbelievable way, but it was totally like he chose like his his acting choice was I'm a Renaissance Fair actor. <laughs> 
and I take every word that I can and make it big. And there's one scene in particular later where the, he really chews on the words. Uh, and it was fun to see somebody just kind of go over the top like that. Definitely and 100%. But right now, I'm getting into the guest star, Billy Campbell. So what I'm saying is, do you have memories of him throughout his career? The oh. Rocketeer, motherfucker. The Rocketeer is the only thing, right. Oh man, he's in everything even now. Like uh, like I say, even beforehand, Dynasty, he was the first big um, late night soap uh, leading man gay lover, right? So on Dynasty, he was Steven's uh, uh, gay lover that, that they hid their, their true and passionate, like innocent love, you know, from everybody. And then it came out, it was a big scandal. And then he died heroically getting shot in the head by terrorists, right? So then right after that, <laughs> detective, uh, and it, it works pretty well. It's a pretty good show. It, it didn't last very many seasons, but it was great. And then he does this, which I think is such a great leaping off point for his heroic period, which starts with like the Rocketeer, as Kate said, and then goes another four years where he's done a lot of stuff, but he, he never quite hits that stardom level until the early 2000s with Enough with uh, Jennifer Lopez. He's the bad guy in that. That is a big fucking movie in this house. Um, but at the same time he was doing that, he was doing, um, what's the show, uh, Once and Again, right? Which is 30, but it's also This Is Us, and it's, it's all of those shows, right? So for three years, that was the number one show, and Dynasty was the number one show when he was on it. And all of that stuff makes this kind of a huge get for Star Trek, to get him at this point, um... And in exactly one scene later, we'll talk about another little- The video. get, oh, that get, Sorry. I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. That's a great get. But I, I would, let me just add that like, I didn't really recognize him. So I, I you know, I, I didn't recognize him, but now you're bringing back memories of probably where I've seen him. What the character, and I have two perspectives because I watched the, I watched this with my 14-year-old daughter, Zia. So I got her perspective as well. I was like, this guy reminds me of Buckaroo Banzai. Remember that movie? He was definitely yeah. a Buckaroo Banzai yes. type of character. And and Zia, my daughter, was like, well, he's kind of like Flynn Rider from the Tangled movie. Yes. But, yeah. but Flynn Rider was kind of into like one girl and this dude's into like lots of girls. So that was yeah. kind of the difference. But they had the same bravado, so to speak. And well, I was watching it and I couldn't too. help think that this was a clear uh, inspiration for Jack Harkness on the on the Doctor Who stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Watched with, with a lot of interest by the people who a few years later invented that character. Like, clearly they were going to be TNG fans. Um, and that's all I could be thinking is he, he wants to fuck everybody. Yeah, he wants to fuck Ward. <laughs> yeah, why, no. why not? I mean, I don't know. Like, if I had the opportunity and love wins, time in my man. life, I don't want to. I don't want to step on any big reveal uh, notes that you have about Billy Campbell. But, uh, fr but from what I read, he was actually second in line to play Riker. Uh, which makes why his character resonates so much with Riker and that that just affable, you know, scamp. He's a scamp, and why and why we love to hate him. Right. And Gene Roddenberry's number one pick, by the way, he Roddenberry wanted Campbell as Riker, and oh. he lost out on that battle. I mean, I hate to say he's a he's a more natural actor, and I think he's a better actor uh, by far than our than our lovely Will. 
but I don't think he would have been the right choice for Riker. Honestly, I think Riker would have kind of overpowered the series a little bit. Yeah, the 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 reason he lost out is the other guys thought he was too soft. Oh, I disagree. He That's couldn't do he, the, uh, the dressing down across. that Riker does in that yeah. first season. And it could have been just however he was auditioning with it at that time was uh, for them. And he's a little, a little shorter and smaller. A little soft. But I don't think they meant soft like uh, physically. He played it softer. Like he was a little more comedy. I think they don't know what they meant. They do. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> and I, I found myself wondering what would have been like for this guy to be Riker. Um, all right, so that's our, our first scene. It ends, and it ends with uh, a fun little line with Riker saying, unexpected is is our routine. And he has a little chuckle as he's, uh, you know, Riker's wondering, do I have a little competition with the moms on this yeah. ship? And I like how Picard is also... Like that he doesn't seem to treat it like competitive. He's just 100% on board with having another rooster. Craig, what's up? I was going to say, Picard does that role of being like the the... the uh, father, you know, trying to be like, no, you can't. Let me. You must respect my ship, uh, and and try to do it that way. And that kind of theme kind of continues uh, throughout as the only responsible matter because everybody else has fallen in love with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> my, All right. My, my favorite thing about this ending is that Riker takes Wesley and Data with him because why? They're the two most interesting people to take, I think, is where it comes down. Like, who would be, who do we want to meet this rogue? Well, obviously those two. And they chose, they chose correctly. Well, and Wesley is the first one to really say we can help this guy, right? He oh, says, yeah. And then Wesley's like, we can help. And and the captain's like, well, I mean, I I guess we can help. <laughs> it's like, all right, acting. There, there was there was strangely <laughs> not a lot of Jordy. Uh, there was no Jordy in this episode. Where was he? Like he, maybe, I don't, uh, maybe he was on vacation or something. He might have had stuff to do with the the thirty summit of roots coming out at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, one terrific go. scene. He coming he's, out. he's he's in it. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like in the beginning. Like, I think he's yeah. like, like a, yeah, he's you know, a three minute cameo or something. Interstitials there. All right, so we end that one. We go into scene two. We're all well met on the transporter pad. Uh, But then there's a little bit of seriousness with Riker as the uh, tractor beam locks on. And the whole time I'm thinking, did he really do anything when uh, they lock on to that? Because he just says steady, steady, and engage. It it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot going on uh, from uh, Lieutenant Commander there or Commander Riker with the the hookup Zoltan. I've got a question about the the tractor beam that just kind of is boggling my mind. Like I, unless I'm going senile, I in the in the TOS you don't see tractor beams; they're invisible. In another sci-fi, they're invisible. That tractor beam was like a sparkly blue thing coming down, yeah, pulling his ship in. Is, was show. that, yeah? Was that like a new thing going on with the the next generation? What's yeah, that? they didn't have that uh, special effects capability. <laughs> oh, so they okay. So hey, we can we can make it sparkly blue. The tractor being had crew. To be we're gonna make we're gonna erase that problem we had. This thing we're gonna see this thing. Uh, all okay. Right. So we uh, whisk away to the transporter room where the newly introduced transporter chief uh, O'Brien is missing. But there's somebody else, and maybe a little more exciting there. Eric, who do Perhaps. we got? Who do we got Are you talking me? about the immortal Terry Hatcher? Is that I who am. That blew who, my who mind. We first got to see in the love boat as Amy, the love boat mermaid. 
Well, this whole episode was a space love boat. We all know that, right? Oh, yeah. We're all at peace with that. A thousand percent true. Yeah, that's that's what this was. was I mean, we all know Terry Hatch here. I mean, we give the brief overview, right? So as I say, we start out with the love boat as Amy the love boat mermaid, which is amazing. And I encourage you all to check that out. Uh, And then just tons and tons and tons of uh, guest stars and kind of short uh TV series that I don't remember, things like Capital and Karen's Song. She was a regular in both of these, but I do not remember these series at all. And then right here, you have this brief, I mean, co-star most likely uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation, followed by another one on L.A. Law, which is one of the biggest ones. And then we get into the ones that I first really remember her seeing, uh, the big picture, uh, picture directed by um, Chris uh, Guest. And Tango and Cash. Those mm. are the first things I remember seeing her in. Uh, followed uh, closely by her recurring thing in MacGyver and then uh, Soap Dish a couple of years later. Uh, and of course, we all know after that, she's Lois Lane, she's Desperate Housewives, tons of independent films, tons of really fantastic performances. Seinfeld, Seinfeld. Repeatedly broke the internet around the brain. What what um there was a, a movie where she was in like the Bayou of Louisiana. I thought it was a really really good movie. You probably know it. Earlier. Yeah, that's the one with Eric Roberts. Yes, like Baldwin. I was um, just blown away. Mid nineties. What yeah. is that? Heaven's Prisoners. There you go. <laughs> yeah, she did some interesting ones around that time, like Two Days in the Valley, which was kind of a uh, an interesting attempt to do a Quentin Tarantino Pulp Fiction esque thing when everybody was copying that. Uh, right around the time she was becoming very famous on Lois and Clark uh, and occasionally showing up in the same time period as Sidra on Seinfeld. What was that character on Seinfeld? They're real and they're fabulous. That, oh, that was her? Oh, that was her. That's it. Oh, that makes they're sense. real and they're spectacular. That was her line. That's it. But I mean, such a fantastic actor. She's a, she's a Bond femme fatale. What a career the great Terry Hatcher in this scene, holding her own with uh, the outrageous Okona. <laughs> the first, she was the first interest of many, apparently, in this episode. Yes. Uh, and we had to have a little bit of fun of watching Riker and the boys watch Okana talk with them and yuck it up in the background. Uh, and the scene actually ends with very telling. There's some fun music as they usher out of the transporter room into the corridor. And the music is, you know, okay, this whole episode is just for yucks. It, it's going to be light and fun. Don't look at it too seriously. Uh, and that takes us into our third scene, which is uh, a discourse on libido, quarter walk, or data's setup. So it's a nice little, and there's a, there's several of these walks in the corridor where uh, we get some tasty stuff. Um, and in this one, I love uh, Okana drops a little fun line with, have you seen any good looking computers lately? Uh, because Data's not uh, picking up on the joke, and it's, of course, setting us up for the B-plot, which is Data's pursuit of being funny. Uh, so what do we think about that setup and about this whole plot of Data uh, pursuing comedy as a, a yet another way of trying to understand humanity? I like that it gives Data a, an existential crisis, right? That he can't understand humor, and therefore he's not going to be able to understand humanity um it feels like we've got a lot of existential crises uh for data to to work his way through uh in season one and two through nine uh but uh yeah i mean setting up the sort of idea i I am such a fan anytime data laughs 
I, it gets me every single fucking time. I don't care. It makes me happy. Um, but I do want to note that there's this moment where, um, where Okana being like doubly outrageous, uh, talks about, um, love and, and, um, sex being the same thing. And, uh, and it takes a, it takes an Android to know that that's not true. Uh, that those two things can very much very be separated. Yeah. That comes up a little bit later. It comes up a little bit later, but yes, that's absolutely But right. it's also neat that he then says, oh, maybe you're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's a great bit, like you said, Kate, with his laugh. And it's actually the very first bit in this this episode where Data is, is uh, genuinely funny and has no idea why. And, and, and in that one... I don't even know if the writers intended it or, or what they were doing because they the other characters didn't even acknowledge his laugh as it it sort of fades into the next scene. But it's the perfect example of oh you're funny, you just don't get why you're funny yet uh, or how to manipulate it. Uh, okay, and then we go into C four, which is a uh, the geek talk upgrade. So this is where Jordy we see Jordy for the first time, uh, and I don't know that we ever see him outside of this. This environment, he, he spends his whole time working on Okana's uh, little warp drive thing. Lasers. Uh, yeah, he's upgrading <laughs> it. Um, and this is the bit where, for me, it's like the, the Ren Fair actor came in because he has a line forced to add a bit of flamboyancy and zest to the doldrum of my existence. But he really hits, I'm forced to add a bit of flamboyancy and zest to the doldrums of my existence. Like, he really digs in to that line. Uh, and interesting enough, uh, Google Docs refuses to acknowledge flamboyancy as a word. Yeah, no, he the, the line is so weird, and I think it's great for that reason. Flamboyancy is not a word, and he, singular, and he singularizes doldrums. Uh, the doldrum of my existence. And I, I don't care about those i don't know if it's a, an accident or what but i love that he overdoes this yeah. because he has that line to really do it and it's a way i feel like the whole time i was expecting him to turn heel and be an actual villain with a with a plan to do something to this group both because billy campbell plays villains better than almost anyone because he understands that a smile that people believe can hide a lot of really hor- hard shit uh behind it so when he plays a villain i fucking love it and number two because this dude, man, he's going after Wesley hard right away. He wants this kid on his side. And when he says this and gives Wesley a little wink, Wesley's like, oh, that's why he's acting like that. Well, that's super cool. And, uh, you know, that's like the third scene in a row where he gives a little uh, Long yeah, John's yeah. young Jim Hawkins. Like his protege. I yeah. hadn't even thought about that, but it could have been setting him up like this is a guy I need on my side because he's a smart one. Like when he calls yeah. him... Commanders, like you got to be somebody. Yep. Uh, I hadn't even uh, seen that a little. The con man grooming the kid. Duplicity there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's the line that I think you choose on is from that first opening with Wesley, where he's like, "Oh, don't acting as ensigns have names." Right. Like that was the one. I was like, "Oh, that feels like you're putting on too thick," but he's manipulating the child from the big get go. Right. Right. Easy target. Uh, and I wonder if his costume had anything to do with the way he 
perceive the character because I mean, oh. he he was double sleeveless, right? He had a sleeveless jacket, and when he took it off later, we see that underneath he also had a sleeveless shirt. <laughs> and the crazy <laughs> V with the hairy chest, he had that. Yeah, I mean, on. he certainly really did. He, he could have walked off of that and onto uh, a shakes, you know, a, a Shakespeare play, <laughs> and without changing anything, we would have known he was a space guy. <laughs> yeah. At the Renfest you were talking about. That's where he'd, he'd fit right. in just right. Uh, all right. So we go into scene five, which is the one we've already sort of touched upon. This is another uh, stroll along the corridor. And I thought it was pretty interesting that it starts with Okana is really grilling data about things he's experienced. And I thought this was a kinder Pulaski approach. So instead of dismissing him and saying, you can't do all this stuff, he seems generally interested. Like, have you had dreams? Have you felt love? Can you, you like, and these are questions like he's interested in the other person. And so he's asking questions about them. Uh, and it, it sort of opens up data in him to some great dialogue there. And it's like, you've already said, this is, this is the scene where uh, we hear, uh, the thing about love and when data uh, corrects him on it, he has that great line. And it was the very first time where I thought um, Campbell decided to be genuine. Uh, the actor decided this character is going to be genuine. And was like, maybe. And we see the regret. We see, yeah, I haven't felt those things. And that, that not, not, that's bad. And, and I felt it was neat that he, he chose to address data back and forth in most uh, kind of human way he'd chosen with anyone yet, maybe thinking that he didn't have anything to manipulate out of an android, but maybe uh, you know trying trying nonetheless here and there with the charm and and the stuff. It was it was super neat. I I kept waiting for this anti-hero to turn villain. I wanted it to happen mostly because how he greeted Worf at the beginning and was so racist, but that's a whole. <laughs> different right, no wars. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> this scene is when it's kind of forked off into Data just figuring out the comedy thing, right? Like, that's where in the subplot, like, the rest of the story went on and Data went on his own thing. I, I feel like that's right when this happened. Yes. Yeah, so, well, this is where he's delivered to Terry Hatcher's door. Uh, right. And he has the lives like, uh, it's you probably wouldn't understand that either, talking about the sex and like, uh, fully functional, okay? I, I was kept waiting for them to say, "Have you been? Have you ever dreamed? Have you ever fallen in love? How functional are you?" Right. Uh, did anyone? Did anyone keep track of the of track of the relationships that Okana had? Uh, the number at least three. At least three. At least three. Yeah. Okay. We see okay. two of them: Terry Hatcher, and at the end, he's with uh, a redheaded young lass. And then uh, we know that Warp said he's been he's been uh, in at least three different. <laughs> Uh, well, well, Picard gave him free quarters. free reign. He basically said, Picard said that uh, he's free to socialize with the crew, and like, I, and I'm thinking like, what military vessel brings on somebody and says, hey, you know, we, you know, go socialize with everybody, man, hook up, have a good time. I, I don't know, man. That's I don't know, maybe it's the future. They got that figured out, but it's kind of an odd thing. I, I want to mention that this is the part where I figured out that this episode is almost in real time. Uh, from the moment that they were on the bridge and met Okona's ship, and then Riker took them into the uh, thing, they all went down together and we watched it. We watched them go into the uh, transporter room. We watched them leave the transporter room and deliver Okona to this thing, or to uh, 
Jordy, then we watch them walk over here, and now we're going to watch Data go to Guinan. And it's all in a row until yeah. Data leaves Guinan after, uh, after the second time in 10 forward and goes back up to the bridge for plot C. And it's super neat that that all happens in a row, almost like a Richard Linklater film. Like, it's a really neat way to do it. That's deep, yeah, that's good. Uh, all right, so we move on to scene number six, uh, where everybody talks about the new guy. So we're back with Jordy uh, Engineering. Uh, Riker's there with him, and they, he, uh, Wesley, and Jordy are all talking about Okano. Uh, and I couldn't help to think about Kate because we have a precious little line from Wesley at the end of the scene where he says, I've already made my choice. I've already made my choice. <laughs> <laughs> I love, too, Riker says he's a man who lives by his own code. He is so horny for Okana. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. You can see it. You can he wants to live vicariously it. through him, I think. Oh, absolutely. That's what he wants. But uh, that, yeah. put, put me on a ship with lasers. I'll have a great time. That's what Riker's <laughs> saying to himself. <laughs> Doing it the old way. The old way, yeah, the good way. Uh, all right, not a whole lot in that one. We go on to scene seven, which uh, struck me as this is the only scene where we see an unimportant Vulcan in that right when we go into Tin Ford, uh, Vulcan takes a drink off of the tray and just walks right out of the picture. And I think it's the first time in Star Trek where we see a Vulcan who uh, isn't of consequence, just an extra in the background. But and most boy, of- did his mom remind him of that every <laughs> single visit. <laughs> You're on the Enterprise and nobody knows who you and are. And nobody knows your name. What kind of Vulcan's on the Enterprise? How did you get a job as a Vulcan you? and not pull that off? Come on now. You're serving drinks, I heard. <laughs> yeah. uh, but most importantly about this scene is we have Guinan and Data together. And I've always dug Guinan, but this scene, I just absolutely love this woman like she is amazing her line yes 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 is brilliant um the response to data as he asks questions and her just yes she doesn't do any more than she needs to and it absolutely fills the room i loved it i had to stop and type and just think about Whoopi goldberg because it's just delicious to watch um, what about the scene? And what about the, that reaction between them? Greg, what did you get from that, from Guinan and Data? What, what was your takeaway there? Well, my, my t- I kept thinking of the meta of this, that they're talking about what is funny, and it's Whoopi freaking Goldberg who is yeah. trying to explain it, but she's not, she never really twists that at all and never winks at the camera, and I appreciate it so much because she is wholly in this character of Guinan just trying to be like, what is the nature of, of humor? Uh, and my my favorite, I, I think this is the scene where uh, she's talking. No, no, it's it's a later one, but it's the uh, uh, the the digital timing joke uh, yeah, that that yeah, data yeah. does, and it's yeah. it's just shades of that where she's like, you, it's it's you can't you can't put your finger on what funny is. You have to experience it and just know it. But that's also not necessarily an attainable goal. <laughs> she tries yeah. to tell him this early on. Well, and, and it's. You know, her stand-up comedy was so character-based, mm. and watching her tell Data what amounts to people are funny. Like, it's not the words, it's how they're performed. It's people are funny. So, so she teaches him a joke 
that he doesn't get and says, perhaps it's not funny. And we can list, look at the words and he's right. It's not a funny joke. But with Whoopi Goldberg doing it and when, and when she goes, yes, at the end of that, like that's the part that's funny. And I laugh out loud and I don't know very many people that could get me to laugh out, that, out loud with that joke. Well, and she's a master. Like, I mean, her stand-up back in the day was yeah. just as good as it gets. Like, so it was kind of like, I don't know if even the viewers of the show would pick that up, right? Like, like she's the master. She's the Jedi trying to teach this android, which is a very difficult thing to do about stand-up comedy. But yeah, good point. Yeah. And one of the biggest stars at this time, like bigger than anybody on this show, yeah. a bona fide movie star. So there's like the gravity of, just having a movie star on the show that, that adds to it. Kate, what about you? Anything on that? Oh, no, it's it's absolutely what everyone said. It's just the, the meta of it was not lost on me at all. Uh, and uh, the meta of it not being lost on me leads into some of my feelings about what's about to happen. Uh, so right. I'll just, I'll so just lay that, layer that. Yeah. Let's just jump in. I mean, one quick thing. I thought about Pulaski again in this. When uh, when the guy in his last lines, because she says, yes, yes, yes. No, it's you, Dana. Um, and she's not mean at all. And I thought, oh, if Pulaski would have said that, it might have been mean. Um, uh, maybe not, but it, no, it just struck me a little bit differently. But so we, we go out of Tin Ford um, and, and <laughs> Guinan sets us up for what could be a disaster because she's sending Dana to the holodeck to ask the holodeck to do something. And this very easily could have turned into him creating something so funny that everybody on the ship dies of laughter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness that didn't happen, but we did. Red alert, red alert, laughter, laughter. (laughs) We did get uh, Joe Piscopo. Mm. Yes. uh, Jersey, Jersey. I'm from Jersey. Take it on the role of uh, uh, Jerry Lewis. So, Kate, what were your feelings? Well, okay. before I get to the feelings, I was really proud of myself because I thought that I caught a a little Easter egg in there because they were scrolling through the names and they settled on the name of the comedian and it was Ronald uh, B. Moore, which mm-hmm. I just have to imagine was a Ronald D. Moore yep. uh, call out. So I was I stopped it and rewound um, a couple times to make sure I was right. So I was pretty proud of myself. Was absolutely. I right, Jimmy? You're absolutely correct. That was yes! the Easter egg, uh, along with all the other things with the the menu, the humorous menu, and all that. That was one thousand points. Awesome. Yes, I win. <laughs> you win the trivia game. Uh, but so, what did you think about uh, Joe Piscopo so taking on even? Even at so you telling me that it was meant to be Jerry Lewis actually makes me feel a little bit better because I I I, I get what they were I guess going for, uh, but when you are looking for the pinnacle of of humor from the twentieth century and you choose Joe motherfucking Piscopo, who I was not a fan of then, right? Like, I was never charmed by him as a child. I never found him particularly funny. Uh, And I, you know, like, but knowing that he was supposed to be Jerry, I kind of get it, but Lord help me. Eric, what? Tell me. I just, I I think the writers and casting people agree with you. And we're... (laughs) angry that they had to settle for this guy and so they added that line maybe something a little more generic that they had data say before they chose him like they gave him the 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 best comedian ever from the 23rd century and he's like no just give me some schnook 
And then they're like, okay, Joe Piscopo. He's like, <laughs> he was a shit. He was a shit for a microsecond, man. I, I remember him on Saturday Night Live. Like, he was very famous. Yeah. He made, he made some terrible movies. Than a comedian. Well, I mean, he was a stand-up comic even then. You know, he, he was an impressionist and... You know, that's what he was brought on the Saturday Night Live to do. And then he got into all the bodybuilding shit. <laughs> he had a terrible movie about, like, horse a racing. A bunch of bad political decisions and started backing all the far right-wing shit, and people stopped hiring him. Oh, I didn't know that dark I rem- side. I just remember him yeah. getting bigger and bigger and, and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. And less and less and less funny. Uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. Steroids I never... shrink your humor as well as your dick and balls. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> um, Bill Irwin was right there. If they wanted someone to do a bunch of great physical comedy, oh like, jokes aren't really my thing. Stop let's it. Go for it. That Bill would be Irwin perfect. was right there. Now I'm angry. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, Piscopo was a mess. Done, I think he had already done the "Don't worry, be happy," or at least yeah. that was soon. Of quick course, coming radar. Like he had. Credits. Well, yeah. here's something that oh, I'm sorry, Greg. You're going to say something. I was just going to say I also didn't was never a fan of Joe Piscopo. I did not enjoy his run on Saturday Night Live very much. But I do probably quote him more than any other comedic actor. With uh, I, you know, I, my mother hit me once, right? Once, and I'll do that all the time with my girls now about everything. Like, oh yeah, no, my uh, my my friend didn't clean up her toys once. Once, <laughs> uh, well, you know, from Johnny Dangerously, uh, which is a uh, terrible movie, oh, but is that's a terrible oh, movie when you pick it. Oh, I up, love yeah. it. You know who wrote it and directed it? I, no, one one of one of my all time favorite directors, uh, Amy Heckerling of yes. High and Clueless fame. Mm. Yes, I, I will always love Johnny Dangerously for that, if no other reason. Yeah, I, I mean, his you. last name's an adverb. <laughs> but again, what? Piscopo Piscopo was Jersey. He had that routine, like, are you from Jersey? I'm from Jersey. And he did he did call out Teaneck, New Jersey, in this right. episode, which the town next to the town that I grew up. So it had a little a little special moment for me. Like, oh he, I think he referenced something. Yeah, that was in Teaneck. Yeah, yeah. We'll but talk the- about this later, Zoltan, but you know, we just moved back from Hackensack. Hackensack, yeah, Teaneck yeah, Hackensack. They're like the, right there, man. That shtick that like the, that and Englewood. That's a triumvirate of oh, New Jersey. Englewood and Jay, man. Yeah, Old Bergen County. Totally. But Joe Piscopo, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, is Italian, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the shtick that he's doing is also that, like, and especially that it feels like he's doing the the Jewish comedian from, uh, you know, the Catskills kind of he's shtick. Doing the Borscht Belt I, stuff. I wish they yeah. just hired. Uh, Someone to do that instead of someone. Jackie Mason was still around. An impression of doing that. And here's the one thing that I took away from the whole comedy thing. I like Jackie Mason's great, but they were talking about the most relevant person for. They said bring up a comedian that fits this this um, uh, this room, which was a, a modern room. It looked like a 1980s comedy. Like everybody was dressed in a certain way. And I don't know if you guys remember, but this was really a big deal in the late 80s was the, the MTV's half hour comedy hour and there was mm-hmm. it was like being a stand up comedian it was like you can make $100,000 with a the same 5 minute routine that you do for 7 years just going around the country like 
being a stand-up comedian was it was a lucrative easy to get into career and there was hundreds of them and there were a lot of comedians i mean you could tip on almost any station had some kind of comedy show late at night where it was just comedians up there and there was a you could throw a rock and get 50 people who would have been great at this little bit rather than Joe Piscopo and better, I think, than a Jerry Lewis or a, or a Jackie Mason, only because they were more relevant for the for the time period that they're supposed to be representing. Not that they were funnier, but this wasn't a throwback to, oh, here are the great people from 40 years ago. Um, right. So I wish they would have had something a little more a modern take on that. Mm. I, I will say this scene is very long. Uh, <laughs> too long, too long. Yes, but, thank you, Kate. Like to where the point where I was like, "Is this the A story?" Like it started to become the A story to me, which mm-hmm. is why I said we could have called this episode "Hey Lady" just as easily because uh, we spend a long time in there. But we do get, uh, I think, what we all had hoped and dreamed for in the late '80s, which was the ability to fast forward Piscopo, and and let's <laughs> not forget that. Anybody research if somebody has transcribed what it is, like slowed it down, and I bet it's all really killer stuff. Yeah, I bet it's stuff. It's all lyrics. Uh, But we go right from the fast forward into data bombing in Tint Ford because it goes immediately into Tint Ford to show Guided his new hand movement as comedy routine, and of course, it doesn't go well. Well. I want to say, I want to say that there were times during the ten or during the the holodeck stuff that I laughed out loud, but it was all when the genius physical comic got up there to work with Piscopo and not to be a genius physical comic. Like when Data got up there and and Piscopo tried to do that Jerry Lewis bit of "Where'd he go? Where'd he go?" Oh yeah, yeah. deadpan turning around with him like that got me a laugh, and Data forgetting to take the teeth out when he was talking got me a laugh in a way that I was I was grateful to give him those hackneyed bits because I laughed at Data doing them in a way that I did yeah. not laugh. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and so with uh, Intin Ford, we get the moment we already talked about uh, where another genuinely funny moment from Data uh, when he says, my timing is digital. And a really lovely response from Guinan. The way she laughs is just genuine and like the kind of laugh you want to get. Like if you can make somebody laugh that way, man, that's worth a million dollars. She couldn't help it. She didn't want to laugh too. That was the thing. She did, she kind of tries to not laugh, but then still does. Yeah. And it's sure. subtle and perfect. And I love, I just love that. That's the funny part is when he's not trying to be funny. And you're right, Eric. It is a continuation of that from, uh, from the previous thing. He's the straight man and he doesn't know it. Uh, yeah, and so I threw it out to the crew here. Nobody responded, trying to come up with a punchline to a monk, a clone, and a Ferengi decide to go bowling together. But don't worry, guys. Uh, you're not the only ones who could make this work. I actually did a deep dumpster dive into the interwebs to see if anybody else came up with a punchline for this. And I can say unequivocally, no. There's a lot of people who tried and uh, their jokes were terrible. Uh, So you were wise. 
not to respond to that. Um, and then right, so right from the 10 forward, uh, we go into scene 10 where everyone's a comedian. So we're back on the bridge. Uh, and this is where we get um, one of the two ships of the families that we're going to see come in. And oh, this man, is the best. Yeah, this is they the come it really, up with, uh, just really kicks off. One liners after another, just dissing on the technology of these poor people. Um, and I mean, it starts with Warp, but Picard and Riker both get their digs in. And they're pretty good digs. They are good digs. My favorite is how unamused Worf is at the surrender joke. Like, he is just not amused by that whatsoever. And I think it's because it's lasers, right? Like, it's-, it's like rubber bands. Like, what do you got, rubber bands? Like, this is not very interesting. What are uh, navigational shields was a phrase in this scene that stuck out for me as a sci-fi thing. I was like, oh, yeah, they would have to have nonstop non-navigational sh- because there'd be debris hitting them debris, all the time yeah. and so it's not even their weaponry shields it's their navigation shields in case they hit a bird yeah exactly you want yeah. a space bird <laughs> i do like when we first meet the 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 dude that's in the ship you can tell that he is very serious because he crosses his arms Ooh. and the moment his arms cross you can tell he is very unhappy with this situation <laughs> And we don't know yet. We don't yet know why. No, right? we don't know like, why. We're like, ooh, what's what's got under your skin, friend? My tunic is too tight. Yeah, yeah, that could have been the problem, but apparently not. It was a nice long jacket, though. I like that look their 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 planet it, has. There was another interesting thing that was happening on the bridge that I've I don't recall ever happening. There was a lot of muting going on, like mm. mute, uh-huh. mute. Right. right, they hadn't done it before. They were no. uh, they it just talked, and somehow it just went off. I guess, and then they would just turn it off, and then the person would be talking on the screen. They wouldn't be listening, and it was just that's a that's a new thing with Star Trek. The whole mute concept. I don't think they. My favorite is ever is did the type it. Of stuff that Worf would say without muting it. It's like, all right, you can come over to the ship, and Worf's like, Captain, I recommend we don't let him see. <laughs> <laughs> He's very serious. There's a lot of telephony Always. in this entire episode, which we'll get into. Like how, I mean, it's a very 80s episode where it's, there's call waiting, there's conference calls. We're going to get to it. But it's, it's, I love how this starts with the muting where they're trying to control the communications. It it's is. very. Well, when data, well, remember when data was going really fast, that yeah. was like VCR speed. It wasn't it was. like, it was like Android in the 23rd century speed. Right. Imagine if you can do that with a computer program, how much faster you could read. Yeah, right? Like, you wouldn't even need to see it. So then, yeah, we... Yeah, so we go into scene 11, um, and this is where we enter the Capulets and the Montagues. So uh, first we get the Capulets uh, uh, and their one name rep. The Montagues then show up. Uh, I thought the guy in the Montague side, so this was uh, uh, the son's dad. Um, he had a nice little moment like uh, Z had already alluded to where he gets muted and he realizes that he's been muted and he's angry and so now he's like he's doing that thing where you try to look into the camera like if I get close enough to the camera I can see what's behind <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's trying to see what they're talking about uh, and this is actually the scene where we find out that Warp tells him uh, Okana has been in three different crew quarters which like Eric had brought up, this isn't real time. So with Okana, I guess it's uh, quantity over quality. 
Because yep. he's been in three quarters in not a very long period of time. So I figure it's the walls are thinner than we expect. So he leaves one room and the next door just opens. <laughs> but he's still leaving very quickly. It doesn't matter. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's yeah. my point is three uh, in an hour. He's not sticking around for long. And no one seems concerned. His uh, his lady his lady friends didn't seem concerned about it. Everyone was pretty happy with it. No, there's no STDs there's, in the future, Zoltan. There's so no slut shaming in the future. Yeah, he is free to fraternize with the crew all they want. Polyamorous. This is like the beginning. It's starting now, but apparently it's going to be pretty good back uh, in the tw- <laughs> up in the 23rd century. That's when it really shines. <laughs> uh, this- all right. Sorry, uh, Greg. Go ahead. I was just saying. I think after this is one of my favorite scenes of this entire episode, where they uh, Picard tries to get Worf uh, to go get Okana. With the Maybe. great music the that again, plays the, it. The, the marching camera follows down him. the hallway music. Yeah, <laughs> all the way. Get him. And again, it's, it's, it's in real time. why it felt like the humor was becoming the A-plot is because the camera follows one person all the way through. So Data hadn't brought us back to the bridge. And now Worf has to bring us all the way down back to this new, uh, uh, back to confront Okana. Like it's, it's an right. interesting uh choice for the for the director to have made and i'm for it and a nice face off and i actually had to rewind it because i thought maybe uh okana said something Mm-mm. because warp says i would love that so and good i was like oh i missed something and it went back and there's nothing said uh except That's for a stare it's... off and holy cow there is zero chance okana could have done anything in that fight yeah. oh i think that was a makeout. that was a like <laughs> Oh I no! You like think that? Oh, for sure. <laughs> that was, that was a fuck fight or I flight, been, like for sure. Totally changes. I would love that. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, because he's clearly attracted to Worf. Because he's like, look what it, look what uh, you know, it takes to pull me from your arms, lady. Uh, I would only go for someone like this. That, right. That was <laughs> a great line. A great line. <laughs> As he walks out. Uh, okay, so we have the little standoff there between <laughs> the possible fuckfest. Uh, she's very disappointed, by the way, that, that, the lady. I was, I was, that last shot rough. where she's like, hmm. Not as long <laughs> as I was expecting. I love how the door just opens for Worf. Yeah, there's no privacy. He wants to go to the computer just like, yeah, come on in. I don't, I don't know what's in there. He's I mean, got free reign. <laughs> Yep. How many times do you think you've heard that on this on the Enterprise? Don't you knock? <laughs> There's no knocking. There's no knocking on the Enterprise. Just sliding uh, of doors. Authority entrances. All right. So now we go into seat 13, uh, a shotgun wedding. So Picard ices Okana by not getting up from his chair when Okana finally gets up onto the bridge. That was a nice little moment. He was can be bothered with the with the player uh and eric i had a question for you i was watching the scene do you think O'Connor's a good liar Ooh, he's I think absolutely i think he just like someone like jack harkness later he uses what people think of him i think he told us that earlier he says you know uh what's the phrase that you brought up that i love so much i add a measure of flamboyancy and zest you know, he does it all because he knows it makes people underestimate him, I think. Uh, he, he knows he's, he's overmatched with the Enterprise at all times, but he, he 
lives life this way. So I think he, he, he goes back and forth at will. And if you can tell he's lying, it's because he, he wants you to. That's why they should have brought him back in the future, in a future episode Agreed. where he could have like capitalized on that and did something like no one would have expected. We could have had our own Torchwood. Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Could be in the works. An old Econo still up to his old tricks. I He's still as famous as anybody so they got. It. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we have a little standoff there. Uh, I thought he was playing a little coy there. And I thought it was uh, a good acting choice because it wasn't convincing as a liar. So I think everybody knew there was something going on, but they didn't quite know what it was. Like, he's maybe not necessarily lying, but he's not letting us on to what he knows. Yeah. He doesn't and, try to be trusted. Right. Yeah. 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 Not a yes. bad liar. Right, that's perfectly yeah. said, yes. And he doesn't do it in a way that gives it away, even to us as the viewers. Like watching this the second yeah. and third time, like he's not trying to look, you know, I was watching his eye line when the, um, uh, the other two ships are talking, right? And the people who are, he's allegedly helping are in the frame and they very cleverly put that in there, but he's not trying to give signals. He's not doing anything. Right. He's just straight ahead looking yeah. the entire time. And it's them who, if you rewatch, they're the ones who you see giving signals that they're uncomfortable with the way the conversation is going right. or or the accusations of theft. You he, kind of see the sun like look down and like, you know, but only on that can you pick up those signals. And you're like, oh, they're the bad liars. He's the one who's who's holding it up. He was a master keeper of a secret. That's what he did. Yeah. He did it well. And uh, he, all right. Sorry, go ahead, Greg. No, I was just going to, uh, never mind. We'll say it when we get to it. All right, so scenes 14 and 15 up next, uh, uh, what I call the dueling banjos, because I thought maybe these guys aren't the Montagues uh, and the Capulets, but more like the Hatfields and the McCoys. And to me, as, as soon as I saw the son, it's like, he's hiding something. The son yes. has got something up his sleeve. The daughter, you know, is like, Maybe, you know, who knows what happened with the I had a and beautiful her. story in my head that he ha was the father of that baby, but that he also was in a romantic relationship with that son and that there was just Ooh, a beautiful, like, open nice. relationship between the three of them. And I was super into it. Polyamorous. Uh, it was not to be. <laughs> yes. See, I knew it. Have you read the Broken Earth trilogy? No. Kate? Do I need to? I think you'd love it. Okay. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah. Do it. Uh, all right, so the son was hiding something, and then um, I kind of loved at the very end of that 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 scene right there, where it goes away as Picard and O'Connor are going into the principal's office, and you just see the two families screaming in silence because they've been muted, which is a great way to handle, I think, even all political arguments if you could just mute certain people so that you wouldn't have to hear what they're saying. Uh, but then we go <laughs> into the the principal's office. Um, and this is a scene where I first started thinking uh, about this guy playing Riker uh, and the softness of his choices. And I thought that would be pretty interesting um, kind of an actor to play this guy. Uh, and then immediately when he puts his hand on his jewel to telegraph to us that there's something there, I thought, I'm really glad this guy didn't play Riker. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so what do you guys think about this? But other than that, he had some nice moments there where he really is like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I don't know why these guys are saying what they're saying. I don't know. And I, I thought it was totally plausible. Well, how about you guys? I know that Jimmy and I disagree about stuff like this a lot, but that particular choice screamed 
He's director and script to me. Yeah, yeah that was director moment for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, I want to give the actor the benefit of the doubt all the time. I know you do. You've always have. Yeah. And I knew you were going to say that. And I, yeah. as I was typing it, I saw that. I put, uh, weak choice. Even if he was told to do it weak, <laughs> Stewart would have made it work. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> Stewart would have solved that. <laughs> Director faux pas. I think he's and he stays true the entire time. He's like, I am not a criminal. Like I'm not doing what they're what they are particularly accusing me of doing. I'm definitely not doing that. And it's believable because it's true. I mean, I think maybe even himself, he has to have that principle uh, of of what he's doing here. Um, I don't know if he stays in that vein in all of his dealings, but here he's like, nope, you don't have me. You you know, nobody nobody's nobody's got me anything on me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, OK, so we move into the next scene, uh, scene 16, which I call uh, he's good looking because this is the point in which Ella walked into the room and <laughs> saw Khan on the screen and said, he's good looking. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. And then we talked about the podcast and she said, so it takes you an hour to talk about a 45 minute show. <laughs> Sometimes longer. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yes. Oh. There's nuances, nuances. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think what I took away from this scene, um, and this is where they're back in um, uh, engineering with Jordy again, uh, was Wesley and how he impacted the scene. Uh, and the questions that he asked Okana, you can see the shift where Okana was going to do one thing. And again, a terrible decision to hold the jewel and show us because his back is to Wesley and Jordy. So he shows the audience, I have that jewel. And then <laughs> Wesley doesn't come around the corner to see it and he puts it away. But the really good part was the, the Wesley talking to him and, and the switch. Wesley actually sent him in a different trajectory than I think he was going to go. Um, and again, I was saying about you, Kate, on this. Yeah, and, you should have. It's <laughs> so this good. For you? It's so good. And it reminds me a little bit of the talk that... Wesley and Guinan have yeah. in the first episode of season two and that it's a, a little bit of sh that shared wisdom that he gets from Guinan in terms of like where your place is and and where you're going to put your attention and I don't know I just it's a it's it's you know and he had that really lovely um heart to heart with Worf in season one it's just a really nice sort of passing on of the wisdom that he's been given um, in season one and two. I love it. Of course. Of course. My Wesley, he saves the day. Your he's Wesley. so smart. He's got emotional stability too. It's fine. Whoa. So Whoa, so. whoa, whoa. You got a crush on Wesley. I see it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. But, but my, my, uh, my daughter thinks that Wesley looks like a male version of Millie Bobby Brown. That was one of our <laughs> other comments. And I'm like, I see it. I see it. I see that. I see yeah. it. But that one she scene calls. with Wesley, it was interesting because he went to O'Connor and he was like, how can you do this? How can you leave all the time? How can you be away all the time? And I'm like, well, you're away all the time, too. You're on a starship. So I didn't quite get that. But, but he's uh, not alone. He's not alone. No, true, he's usually true. with his mom. Yeah, yeah his mom's there and uh, all his buddies. I, get, I guess, yeah, it's a difference. Yeah, I think it's I think the that's why, of community. Yeah, yeah. In the earlier scene, that's who he says, I've already made my choice. I've made my choice. Wants to be part of Starfleet. I, well, I thought, you, the quite, way you were saying, Zoltan, it sounds like he, he was he was being judgmental, but that's what I like about this scene is that uh, uh, Will Wheaton plays this very much as like, that's just not me. And I, and I think it's the first time in a long time 
that the charm that uh, Okana was playing and like we were saying earlier was trying to to charm Wesley in particular. Yeah, he's like shit. I didn't. I he didn't called get him this out. Guy. This, he called this, him out. This, yeah, this one doesn't like yeah. me. You know, and it's sometimes you know I, I don't know. I, you've had this experience of being like uh, an uncle when you were younger to a kid, and you're like, ah, I'm a cool uncle, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then you're like, well, every once in a while, someone I'm like, you know what, fuck you. And I'm like, you know what, fuck me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's like, Will, Will is above Riker, because Riker was kind of enamored, but he's like, no, 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 this isn't cool. Yeah. I, and like I think that's what makes the switch happen. I think that's the one where he's like, you know, maybe maybe this stupid credo that I've got going on is, is, isn't worth a hill of beans in this galaxy. Oh, the mouths of babes. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, all right, so if we have nothing more on that, we have three more scenes. Scene 17, Okada has a plan. Uh, the parents on the ship, and we're off to conference room 14, which everybody knows is the best conference room. It's my favorite On the Enterprise. Always uh, donuts. Uh, best known as arguments are made as to who should get Okana by both sides. Uh, and neither one has a lot of weight. I mean, they're both kind of frivolous. Uh, and we kind of understand from the way they argue that this isn't what's uh, really important. I mean, did you guys have any takeaways on that? Did it resonate with you or am I, do you agree? Like this is. Uh... I feel like it's a scene, a little filler scene from Buck Rogers. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, but you know what about this scene? The sound seemed off to me, like the way the sound was laid in for the scene seemed off and especially hit me with the two kids when they spoke. It just, it sounded like I thought she was dubbed. She yeah, dubbed it sounded me. dubbed like they had to come yeah. back in and, and record it. And she tried to keep up with what she said in the scene, but it was it just didn't seem in the moment. Um, uh, and then uh, for me, I'll say this one last thing and I want to throw it over to all you guys. Uh, Troy's line. Now we're hearing some truth. I mean, this is yet again another. Thanks, Troy. We know <laughs> <laughs> we all felt that. That's where so this, what do you guys... this feels like a theater thing. They're like, oh, yes, let's <laughs> right. comment on now we're understanding the plot. You are all experiencing it now, aren't you? Right. Just in case you didn't know, audience, <laughs> the truth is coming out now. We're right. finally seeing it. But what I like about this is that the choice that Okana makes here, is, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, he still never breaks trust. He never tells the secret. He just there makes were, oh, the choice yes. that's given to him. And, and he's like, I, if I do this then shit's going to go up. But if I, you know, he never tells anyone anything and he just follows through. And I love that even in his weird credo, he still holds true to it while uh, affecting real change in this plot. That's a good point. He says, I'll take the bride. Yeah. Which he, you're saying he consciously knew, well, this is going to make the, 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 the son, the guy step up. It's like, if you really love this woman, now you're going to step up and, and take her away. So I didn't betray you, but I'm making you actually, you know, get some. I'm forcing your hand. I'm forcing yeah, your hand. And do it. Uh, yeah. And then the bickering dads find immediately, immediately, immediately find a, a brand new reason to bicker. They go from, you know, the, the bloodlust to now we're going to argue about grandbabies. It's like which they assumed was a son. They said, oh, you're going to have a son. Like what? Why? I guess, I mean, I guess technology at that point, I mean, she you do it today. She was holding really high, so I feel like. <laughs> Luca Brazzi says, uh, may your first child be a masculine child. <laughs> Schrodinger's <laughs> Rosemary's baby. 
All right, we're nearing the finish line here. Scene 18, more yucks with Data. Data tucks us up once again on the stage. He has an audience uh, by Guinan's uh, 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 suggestion, so the full house. Uh, and he fails as a comedian. Oh, but I wish fail. it was that. I wish it was that easy to kill in an unknown room where people don't know you. Right. Oh, so, oh, yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. What I what I kept thinking about is what Steve Martin says was the reason he stopped doing stand up, which is, is that they would start laughing before the punchline because they knew they'd like. Mm. That's it just it gave me absolutely no pleasure to get up there and kill without being funny. Yeah, it's, it's like true. watching. It's, it's true. I know. It's and so what, funny. Great. <laughs> you were saying he didn't fail. So what, I don't what think he actually. That? I mean, I don't know if the jokes were actually that funny, but like he, he, that I'm, I'm, he's realizing that it doesn't even matter. Like this is a computer program. There's no yeah, way right. I'm going to be. Uh, you know how can I? How can a computer help to teach me, a computer, how to laugh? None of this makes any sense. Uh, and I think. It's the it's, it's the failure of of learning that little nugget, uh, but it's not. You know, the whole point was that his performance was fine. I guess in another room would it have killed? Maybe not. But he just doesn't even know, and then he starts doing the whole hand thing, which is an image I've held on in my brain for you know thirty years of that him like moving his head and is like ah, move. Great Brent Spiner work here, uh, and he gets to give that line cancel comic. Which is the first, I think, uh, moment where, uh, you know, cancel culture is seen (laughs) (laughs) for a comedian. Uh, So I'm glad it happened to Joe Piscopo on Star Trek. (laughs) With his mullet. He had a mullet. (laughs) I think he he says discontinue comic, which I thought was an interesting uh, turn of phrase. But yes. Well, and I thought he did fail and he failed on the writers wanted him to fail so that he could have a great lesson about uh, humanity, which was, I thought he took another step forward and the laughs weren't real. They were programmed. Uh, and and the, the, the fact that he felt like he failed was a great human lesson of, you can't always be great at everything and that's okay. Uh, and then guy didn't be in there. Like, I mean, who else would you want there? if you totally fall on your face and she immediately lifts him up, even though he doesn't walk away, lifted up Mm -mm. like data for not having emotions. And and as an actor doesn't play an emotion and yet walks away full of emotion. And that is absolutely brilliant. It's kind of the realization of like, Oh, you came in dead last, but your parents are like, you ran, you did an awesome job, kid. You did an awesome job. Like, no, I really didn't. But thank you for that. And that was kind of what that fake holodeck audience did for for Data, which I think he learned from. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Uh, okay, and now our last scene is scene 19, a farewell to rogues. Uh, there's a couple of yuck lines here, but uh, Greg, you had sent this one to the in an email. Uh, and it's probably the best one. Take my wharf, Give it to it. please. Uh, and it's it's that thing i mean the reason why i love this ending and it's something that people have quoted many many times like it just feels like it's a it's it's a it's a go-to for for star trek next generation fans um but he gets one laugh data gets one laugh and he loves it and he's like i can i can do this i can i i got it i finally maybe i did learn even through all these misadventures how to make people laugh and he goes into those weird ass punchlines which are funny 
because it's bad. And the it's girl so at the great. nudist colony who nothing looked good on is <laughs> is genius. That is, that is so fucking funny. And it reminds me of I was teaching summer camp one summer and I had this kid who was probably like in fourth, third or fourth grade. And he goes, I have a joke from my dad, which I should have known. No, right away. but I said, go ahead. And he says, so a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office wrapped in nothing but saran wrap. And the doctor says, well, I can clearly see your nuts. <laughs> and then he pauses and then goes, because he's crazy. <laughs> this kid had no idea why the joke he was telling was so funny. And it just reminded That's me even of better, that yeah. data. That's so much better. <laughs> the, the, the joke that he tells with Take My Wharf, Please, though, that we were just talking about, like that would legitimately have gotten a laugh in that room because it is an improv. Like it is... He actually tells a joke that he thought up, that he references an early joke that is now a cliche, and comes up with the take my wharf is legitimately, legitimately good. As a, as a no, joke, no hesitation like he did. Like, that would have killed in a writer's room. And it probably did. That's oh, why yeah, you put yeah. it in. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, sure. did. Yeah. Uh, and Wesley sets up that whole thing with the say goodbye data. Not, I don't think it was delivered all that well. Again, I put Stuart would have made it work. Um, <laughs> With the say goodbye, well, like Wesley yeah, messed it up? Say goodbye, say goodbye, Dana. It just seemed out of context. It's like he's being a little bossy or something. Like, don't be rude. Like, we've never said goodbye to anybody on the screen before. Why are we saying it now? Right. Because he's right. outrageous. Because we because need to set, set up the up joke. The that's why. We got to set it up. That's that. That was the only reason. Uh, and I don't think Will Written Wheaton gave it any more thought than that, and that's why it came out so flat. Uh, but the rest of it was great. Uh, so Zoltan, we go around the wheel at the end of it and sort of give our overall impressions. So uh, Eric, I'll start with you. What do you think about outrageous, outrageous Akona? I give this ten wild elephants. Wow! Ten. Holy I, cow! I, I really liked uh, right from the beginning uh, when when the ridiculous, ridiculous captain's log came out. <laughs> I, I decided to really enjoy myself, and I sure did. I think, you know, I watch, and again, I'm going to bring it up because he's he's currently one of my favorite actors, Billy Campbell. What he did in this is super fun, and it's even more fun now that I, I've seen thirty more years of his work. Right? So I think back to The Killing, where he's kind of a villain, and Enough, where he's, for me, one of the best villains in, in film history. I think he's so good in that. And it comes from knowing how charming he is and knowing how people react to his uh, you know, beauty and personality. And he plays those complex characters so well that when I go back and watch this, I see that career coming. And I, I just really enjoy myself. So largely due to the fantastic work of, of Billy Campbell and like Terry Hatcher and all these surprises all the way through. I just, I loved it. Ten Wild Elephants, which as David told us in the beginning, are rogues. All right. Ten Wild Elephants from Eric. Uh, Miss Kate, how about you? What do you give this episode? Uh, I give this one six and a half glavens. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, I love all of the Billy Campbell stuff and all of, uh, you know, Brent, uh, all of his physical work. And, um, you know, I, I, I actually was a little bit of a sucker for the like 
star-crossed lovers um storyline too um just the way that that kind of shakes out but uh but the piscopo factor is is big for me so i that that knocks it down to a six and a half in the glavin scale all right greg what about you um, I'm going to give it uh, eight saliva-filled teeth prosthetics. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really, really good, but there's some parts that are super disgusting uh, and I don't like as much. But it, it it hit all the right notes. It knows what it is. I, mean, I, I think it's actually a well-directed movie. Uh, as far as the composition goes, the few acting moments that we think might be directing and writing choices aside. Um, but I really just love the construction of it. It's it's a really good episode. The uh, cast is strong. I legitimately laughed many, many times throughout it, which is rare for a Star Trek episode. Uh, you know, there's usually a few zingers, but this is just uh, it's a comedy, not a tragedy. And uh, I like that. Z, what about you? What do you give it? Yeah, I think, I I mean, naturally I was going to give it a six, but I'm going to boost it up to a seven because it had Terry Hatcher in it. Um, and I go back to my daughter watching it and she's like, I want to watch more of these next generations. Yeah. Like she Yay! dug it. She dug it. She dug it. So she's in, I think. And I give it credit for that. I think, and she has not seen the best of the next generation as no. I, as I hinted at earlier. So I think there's a lot of upside. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it covered a, it got interesting. It got kitschy at some point. So it was like, ah, but you know, it, it broached some interesting topics, I think with data and we'll all look past, uh, Piscopo's weirdness and, uh, yeah, seven, seven for me. All right. I think I will also give it seven, a uh, seven STDs. Yikes. I've never had any of them, so I wouldn't know. Uh, seven of them. Seven of them. Of the, all of the STDs that are out there. Uh, Eric will uh, twit at you what those are later. Uh, <laughs> twit at you. The twit. The twit, as the old men say, like me. Uh, seven because it was uh, pretty fun. It's a it's a nice little romp, and uh, it wasn't trying to be anything more than that, which was pretty cool. That it just stayed on track and and didn't try to bounce back. It knew what it wanted to do, and it did it really well. So I think a really fun episode. Season two has really opened up with four pretty good. Uh, shows we did not have that in season one four in a row especially from the beginning uh so it's really starting to pick up and i'm pretty excited so uh i'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys and talking more with tng thank you so much zoltan for joining us this week please, it was great please invite me back you. uh anytime all right Absolutely. we'll see you guys or you guys can hear us <laughs> next week stay cool everybody and i'm really gonna wet my pants Thanks for joining our Cultural Bridge Officers for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing the mission with another episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. We want to hear from our listeners. If you've got questions or observations, hailing frequencies are open. You can email letsreengage at gmail.com or if you're more social media minded, follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at reengagetng to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun. Eric Grattan emails the best way to ask him a question. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Instagram. 
Jimmy G is Jimmy at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Greg Tito is Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry, Krista from Glee on Twitter, and Krista.Curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by MojoJojo97 on Twitter, or you can find her at Mojo97.com. And our theme music is by the incomparable Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for Riker's Beard to reengage. <laughs> <laughs>